Hello and welcome to the Above Board Podcast. I am Paul Jarvis and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and co-founder, Jack Ellis. And today we are happy to have a special guest joining us, Matt Wensing from Summit. So, so Matt, we obviously know who you are. I know who you are. Um, who are you? Like, so, what's your history in business, and like, what's the story about President Obama as well prior to your current business? I'm just curious. <laughs> yes, uh, in in 12 seconds, uh, I was the founder of a company called Storm Pulse, uh, and I began that business in 2000, working on the idea in 2004. I read a book by Paul Graham called Hackers and Painters. I was super interested in what was happening in Web two as it was just coming on the scene. I graduated college in 03, computer science education, but actually humanities major, because um, I couldn't commit fully to, to anything. <laughs> I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I ended up getting a job as a software developer. I got the bug to build something. I ended up building a weather tracking startup from scratch, um, which included interactive maps for weather. And what was interesting is I was doing that before Google Maps had an API. So I spent literally years building one of the first interactive maps on the internet, which also had weather on it. Didn't use a mapping API, built my own, literally from S3 all the way to the front end clients. It was, it was, it was wild. <laughs> and uh, that ended up being a grueling journey uh, to product market fit. It took years and years. Of, we bootstrapped for five years, then I raised money. And we got to the point where um, it went viral. It, it, truly, you know, we ended up with millions of, of users and the White House became a customer. So to jump to that point, just through organic traffic and interest, the bunker of the White House, which is called the Situation Room, which actually isn't, well, it is and isn't a bunker. There's two of them, um, became a customer. And I didn't know this until one day I got a phone call. I'm pouring cereal uh, for my kid, one of our kids, and I saw my voicemail. It's like Google Translate voicemail thing where it like tell... And on the words that said, I'm so-and-so calling from the White House. Like, I look at, I remember looking at my daughter and going, honey, I think, I think the White House might have called me. Like, that's not possible. So I hit play, and sure enough, it was. Uh, and I called them back. They gave me a number to call. And when I called back, they uh, picked up in like one ring and said, situation room, this is Kevin. And I said, oh my God, I'm going to jail. <laughs> I'm going to jail for calling the world's most important telephone for no good reason. And I had to quickly think, you know, this is like when you're a kid, don't call 911 or the emergency number because, yeah. you know, you'll get in big trouble. I had this horrible feeling suddenly and I said, hi, I'm Matt. Kevin left me uh, or Sharon or whoever it was left me a voicemail. I'm calling back to get a hold of them. And they said, oh, she's out right now. How can I help you? It's like, I guess you have to update your credit card information. And I start, I just literally had a conversation. I found out, sure enough, they were a customer. And they gave me a hot tip, which to this day you can still find. If you go online and you search Situation Room uh, like video tour on YouTube, there's an archive video tour of the Situation Room. And you know, of course they have to pick something to put on the screens that's not highly confidential, like spy satellite imagery or something. Our product is actually on the screens as the White House gives a tour of the Situation Room. <laughs> 
And uh, years later, President Obama came to Austin. He met with five entrepreneurs. I was selected to be one of those five. Then when the White House heard that I was going to be one of those five, a Secret Service person actually ended up asking the host if I could present first. I did. President Obama enters the room. We bro-hug. I proceed to somehow repeat the 90-second speech that I had rehearsed 150 times that morning without stumbling. And now there's photos about it and everything. And at at the, the best moment was he pointed to a picture that I had put in the slides. I had three slides I could show him. I took a screenshot of that Situation Room tour, and there's a person sitting in a chair looking at our product on a screen. And he points at the screen and goes, are those my ears? Making fun of himself. The whole room explodes. Everyone's laughing. I lose my mind. I'm like, this is some kind of weird recursive dream where the president is making a joke in front of me about himself looking at my product. At the, I, I, my whole brain divided by zero at that point, and I, 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 I think I blacked out. Uh, but that happened. And um, as I like to te- joke, it's all been downhill from there. I, I don't think anything better than that has ever happened to me. <laughs> that was your peak moment. In the world. That was my peak moment. And uh, yeah, but it's a great, it's a fun story. And um, that's how it all happened, believe it or not. So. And you've, you exited that business obviously prior to Summit. When did you exit? Uh, 2019, that deal closed. Oh, I wow. actually stopped working there in early 2019. I, I went to part-time in early 2019. And then by the time the company was acquired, I was no longer an employee. Okay, so this isn't your first rodeo in business and you share a lot of stuff on Twitter. You know, we talk privately and I'm interested in a lot of your takes. Uh, you, the way you talk about product market fit aligns with what I believe and I want to kind of poke you on that a little bit. You see some people saying, oh, business is just luck. You don't know what's going to succeed. So just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall because you just don't know, right? Product market fit, you won't know until you've done it, blah, blah, blah. You approach product market fit very differently. And I think Summit is a great case here. You had an idea of what it might be and you built the tech. And from what I understand, you've pivoted numerous times to land closer to something which is, which is working. Can you talk mm-hmm. about how you approach product market fit in general? Yeah, I, I, I start with inventions. That's my curse and joy <laughs> is that I typically invent something to solve a real problem that I have without really any knowledge about the utility for the rest of the world, you know? And I, I just, I'm a creator. I, I love to create. I was an artist as a kid, still try to be, and I, I just find immense joy in creating things. So, so for me to invest 10 years of my life into building a product out, the genesis has to be because I created something that I just love using. Mm-hmm. There's a separate approach to product market fit pursuit, which is I'm obsessed with this customer, this person, these users. They are my joy, and I'll build something that makes their jobs or lives easier, better, faster, cheaper, whatever solves their problem. Tell me what your problems are. You are my North Star, right? That can be great. There's drawbacks to that too, but I start with the invention. And then I, I, the reason I have to pivot so many times, and I did with my last business as well, is I just don't know. Um, I have assumptions and I am, I, I learned the hard way all, the, all that most of my assumptions are wrong. Mm-hmm. But if I succeed, it's because the kernel of what I created does have value that applies to some group 
somewhere. <laughs> and they end up really unlocking more value than I ever imagined. So with my first company, it started as a weather tracking software. Our perfect ideal customer ended up being a multinational food and beverage company who needs to somehow navigate environmental systems when they ship perishable goods, frozen products, needing to deliver things just in time. I never imagined that like, oh, weather tracking map, like who really is going to get the most value? Oh, I didn't know it was going to be the person who's trying to deliver fresh produce to a grocery store, you know, tonight while there's a tornado going through or or an ice storm going through. I had no idea, right? And I didn't even know these people, but I went on a seven-year journey and I found them. And when I did, to them, it was crazy because they're like, I don't think even if you worked here, you would have invented this. But this is exactly what we're looking for, right? Like that, that's, so my approach always is a, it's an arduous journey of many sort of discoveries that, oh, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And I just keep, I just keep refining my theory about who is going to extract the most value from this. Which, which I think is part of the skill set of being an entrepreneur, that, that refining state. Because, I mean, you know, people build stuff and they never get anything to market. They don't know what to try. They don't know how to approach things. You obviously have that from your previous business. And I'd say you're quite experienced with that. I really do think that's where people fall down. And the next part of it is how much luck is involved. You know, like obviously <laughs> luck is there's like random luck. And then there's luck that you mm. sort of create or you expose yourself to. How do you look okay. at luck as, as its role in terms of what you do? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I need, I think we... I think you need luck at least to be, you, you need lady luck, if you will, to be neutral. It can go negative and you're dead. And, and like, that's not your fault, right? It, it, it's nothing to do with you. You know, uh, for our last company to find product market fit, and again, this is because of my invention, Genesis, there ended up being a, a wicked weather system winter weather system that hit the United States that caused some of the world's largest companies to go looking for a solution like ours. <laughs> right. And when they found it, but I, I didn't create that. I think a lot of people have those, I think a lot of success stories have those moments in their history where the stars just aligned. Hmm. Because the world is so big, it's not really possible for someone who has either bad luck <laughs> or, uh, or maybe even neutral to to create that kind of impact on, on their own. Like, I, I think luck is really our way of explaining things outside of our control, maybe after mm-hmm. the fact. That was good luck. What does that really mean? Things outside of my control lined up. You know, wh- I had bad luck. What does that mean? Things outside of my control twisted or did things in a way that harmed me. And I think that means it's not your fault, but it's also not your credit, right? <laughs> sure. and, I, and I think, I, I think, that means that my focus can't be on can't be on that kind of luck. It's it's like what you said. It's more on the created. The only way I can create luck is surviving long enough to be around for the positive luck event. Right? Survival creates its own luck eventually. I believe. Um. So you obviously you've started Summit after having a successful business, and you're starting to find this product market fit after you've pivoted a bunch. Um, I think before, before I get into my next question, like what is the core of what Summit does? Sure. <laughs> I love answering that now instead of 12 months ago or even six. <laughs> the, 
what Summit does is it gives today, it gives marketers who are target customers the opportunity to create product-like experiences for their audience. So what does that mean? Calculators, forecasts, and simulations are the product-like experiences that are really easy to create with our tool. It turns out that a lot of marketers have always wanted to provide more interactive components, experiences, widgets, whatever you want to call them, for their users, for their visitors. But engineering resources are scarce. They don't know how to create those themselves. And therefore, they're sort of left just providing a video, a blog post, content in its traditional format. What we do is we step in and say, look, here's a bunch of pre-built tools and calculators that you can add to your site. You can brand them, style them, color them. And then what's really powerful is we will connect those to your CRM. So similar to how you apply connect mix panel or something to your product, we're providing analytics and tracking and data piece to these tools so that when somebody comes to a website and you say, oh, I might buy a new car. If there's a car loan calculator and somebody fills it out, sure, it's anonymous data. But this is an example where if the marketer just finds something off the shelf or hires somebody off of Upwork, that data is lost, but it's intelligence, right? They would love to know that, hey, we just spent all this money on an advertising campaign. A bunch of people visited our site. Oh, look, people are, people are looking to borrow way more money than we expected. You know, this is, this is an intelligence tool, right? Gathering tool for them. And so we're, we're not just selling it as interactive content. That is the benefit to the user is it provides you with some kind of insider analysis that's hard to do in a spreadsheet. And therefore, you're, you want to use it. The benefit for the marketer is audience intelligence. You know, what are my prospective customers interested in? How are they doing? What do they want from us? These are all insights that are lost when they either choose passive content or they have to get you on a phone call and then say, hey, <laughs> don't really know much about you yet, but can you tell me a little bit about your business? And they try to do these discovery calls. If you think about it that way, we're actually moving a lot of discovery into the funnel in a way that is also more ethical than say third-party data or some kind of first-party tracking or cookies because the person is literally voluntarily sharing data with with a company saying hey help me figure out how much money i should borrow for my startup and we can do that they? then they benefit right away because there's some kind of calculator going on yeah exactly so they benefit they get an answer that says oh yeah i, yep. I guess at this interest rate you know maybe we should borrow 250k or whatever it is at the same time there's no email address it's anonymous but at the very least that lender goes hey we have interest from the market in a loan yeah. of this size and shape. I hope they reach out one day. What can we do with that information, right? And so we're providing a level of intelligence for the marketer that they can't get otherwise. And full circle, this is not at all where I thought we would end up. <laughs> so. This is beyond AWS cost calculators. This is actually, yeah, very, this is, that's interesting, man. Hmm. I, uh, I mean, Summit excites me. I've been aware of Summit for ages. People using it to, like business cash flow forecasting various things like that because it can yep. do stuff easier than you know, hacking around a spreadsheet trying to do stuff with that it's, it's advanced super advanced calculator yeah and then that's so that's the funny more. thing we we built it originally thinking that people would want to build that and do that themselves just like they use spreadsheets yep the product market fit has come when we realized you know marketers really would benefit more and so would the users <laughs> if the marketers bought it and just gave it away for free oh right <laughs> that, okay that as, as you know exactly as engagement as audience intelligence 
Right. Okay. I'm going to step back a second because I want to get into like the enterprisey stuff with you. Um, yeah. I suppose I, I want to, you're building a business, right? You're obviously, you're a technical guy, so you have the ability to, to build stuff. Um, why, why didn't you take like a million, two million dollars in seed funding and hire professionals to build things and, and spend out full-time roles, that sort of thing? Like why, why did you build it the way you did rather than taking that two million dollars and hiring people? Yeah, so uh, I don't think I've shared this publicly very much, but we have raised about two million. Oh wow! But that was, but that was over the course of three and a half years. Okay. So I raised a hundred. I raised two hundred thousand to get started, and that's because I had Rob Walling and Einer Volsa to Tiny Seed basically say, "Hey, congrats on your last business. You can bankroll it yourself." I'm like, I don't really want to put more risk <laughs> into startups. Sure. I'm kind of stretch myself out for 12 years. Thank you. But if you'd like to fund me exploring this new market, great. And so, but then I doubled that amount every year and a half or so and raised more money on the heels of discovery and traction on whatever that first phase of work had been. And that kind of granular, more high resolution fundraising I think was so important because if I'd done it the way you're describing of here's 2 million all at once, I would like to believe that I would deploy that correctly. But it changes your budget on the tests that you can run. And mm. it is almost impossible not to justify a larger test that is unnecessary at the time. So yes, of course you can build a bigger, fancier thing and you will learn a bunch, but you are not forcing yourself to build the cheaper, tinier thing that educates you 95% as much, right? <laughs> and so it, it created a discipline. Now, would I have taken a $3 million check up front? I'm not going to say I wouldn't have, of course. But did I? No. Could I have? I don't think so, because I think oftentimes people who can raise $3 million on an idea, you know, they're not me, right? They, they, they're different people. And I wasn't that, and I didn't do that. So we have raised and used a bunch of money. However, it's been over the course of, I would say, all four pivots that you mentioned earlier, right? Okay, so you took additional funding to help explore reaching product market fit. Like there was no revenue coming in or there was little revenue coming in and you took on additional capital to explore. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Okay, fine. So you and I would actually say we, we had revenue, I, important clarification. I, I figured out willingness to pay and had revenue on every version of our product. So I only pivoted the business when I got to the point where I said, ah, I see. It's these customers for this product at this level of pay, and this is the go-to-market motion that attracts new customers. I kind of had a sketch of the business at that point. And then I had the choice of, okay, this is a blueprint. It's working. This prototype, if you will, is working. Do I want to rebuild the product and make it stronger, better, and serve these same customers? essentially the same value proposition or do i want to say this isn't it like this isn't big this isn't this isn't going to get big enough this isn't exciting enough these customers are going to churn there's something wrong with this business is not fundamentally sound or big enough and that's what i ended up doing several times is just basically scrapping that into a ball and throwing it in the wastebasket <laughs> and starting over 
Okay, I've been I've been viewing it through through the wrong lens. I've been viewing it as you didn't have any product market fit and you you changed to get product market fit like as if it's binary. You actually had some kind of product market fit. What you've done is you've wanted more sustainability, I guess higher higher revenue. Right? I mean, who doesn't want that? And you've mm-hmm. then refined the product market fit because arguably you would have had like a successful business if you'd have stopped at stage 1. You may have been I, I don't know. I don't want to call it a lifestyle business because that's not a negative thing. But you may have been at a decent level. But uh, yeah, I think with aiming- the first business, I could have gotten it to six figures in revenue, maybe over the yeah. course of two or three years. That didn't interest me, and I don't think that interested. I, I, I think that would interest some people, but it, it, I didn't. That wasn't my ambition. That wasn't my vision. So I yeah. said, okay, but there's something here. Do I have any more idea? Could could I somehow? Is there a bigger opportunity? And then I would iterate. And then with the second version, I basically figured out, wow, they're paying more. The, I think the revenue is stickier. The product is, I, I enjoy the product more. It's more sophisticated. I think it's more defensible. <clears throat> but the biggest problem with the second version of the product was the cost to serve was, was horrible. I was basically doing almost like consulting work for people to get, their, get them up and running. But their willingness to pay wasn't commensurate with that level of effort. So it was this really, it was this awful like consulting business where I was basically charging them like $150 a month instead of $10,000 a month. You know, that's like, that's a really bad zone to be in. You're like, of course they love it. You're doing consulting work for $149 a month. Of course they love you. But that's not a good business either, right? Um, But I learned through that as well. Okay, so at this point you're making $150 a month, you know, consulting, doing tons of work. Your time's obviously (laughs) worth way more than that. Yeah. Um, why didn't you call it dead? Like what, what, what made you know, or what made you, not know, that's the wrong word, mm-hmm. but what made you confident that you could take it to the next step? Was it just a case of having ideas? Yeah, I think that, that I, me- I remember what we learned from that. What I learned from that experience was, wow, this product is very, <clears throat> this is interesting. The, the stress, let's go back to the stress. The cost to serve stress was the, origin of an idea. I said, why is this so hard to do? Why, why can't I just say yes, give them what they want, and then I, like, I get to make this money, and then like, we all win, right? Like, can I somehow bring down the cost to serve was sort of my riddle. And I did, I, basically, the, 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 third, the third version of the product was my way of saying, wow, if I turn this into a low-code platform, basically where I can code up new features for customers in an afternoon or in an hour. Oh, you want the product to do this? I can write a little bit of very high level code and it would literally build features, right? I, I, I actually said, the stress is because I have this long list of product requirements and demands that people want and they don't overlap at all. This is, what, what is this? I said, ah, okay. they want infinite flexibility. How can I do that? And so I created a third version of the product that was essentially it was a development, it was a, I created my own DSL, so to totally nerd out, my own domain-specific language that would actually write Python code to create the features that people were putting stress on me for. Oh, wow. So I, I, I changed my development timeline from this is going to take me a month to I built it in an hour. What's next, right? Yeah. And that then became interesting because I was like, okay, this is cool. But then anytime you create something new and you have a breakthrough like that, it's not just the satisfaction of the previous need. It's the, well, what else is possible now? 
Like if, if, if this is true, <laughs> this is a much bigger breakthrough than just I can serve these $149 customers. I mean, I created a language apparently that can create features for a financial modeling tool in 10 minutes that used to take me a month. What's that worth, right? <laughs> and so that, that was the genesis of the third version of the product. Yeah, no, this is interesting. This is, um, this is really interesting. Um, the, the thing you said about taking um, money from tiny seat that de-risking thing i think that's really important because you know i used to be anti any investment um but like that's coming from i'm gonna like i'm quite privileged i was quite privileged i was having good freelancing income you know, course income not everyone can just take their life savings and put it into a business even mm-hmm. paul you know when we started this it was paul had his savings right and income from his courses so i think there's that part, but there's also how much risk do I want to take? And I think that's a very um, yeah. valid point. But yours is so unique because you had the product market fit. It wasn't just someone, here's money, here's more money to keep exploring. Because th- I know this is a segment of investment where people were literally put in like, millions of dollars for, for top tier engineers to explore yeah, ideas. Yeah. Like it's, I've never, I only heard of this maybe, I can't even remember, but I know that's a thing that happens. And this is what you're descri- it's almost what you're describing, except you had some product market fit along the way. I, yes, and I, I think actually my investors never knew. And I don't think, this was never quite so intentional, but let's put it this way. I build a prototype. People are paying me $50 a month. I have three yeah. customers. I take it yeah. to Rob and Einer and say, look, what do you think? This could be a lifestyle. This could fit the tiny seed model. And they say, yeah, great. Here's some money. We believe in you. That felt amazing. Obviously, they were investing way ahead of the growth that I was hoping to get. Yep. But when I got that money, I was like, I've got 12 months or 18 months now ahead of me. Do I really want to just stick with this product? <laughs> and so then I would build that other version. Mm. I would get some traction on that. And I would say, you know, you know what investors like is they like traction. I would go raise that other round and they would buy me another 18 months. And I'd go, but is this really what I want to scale? I've got 18 months now. And also, I'm locked in due to this global pandemic. This might be a good time to rebuild this thing yet again and see if I can find bigger and better traction. And so the investment rounds, funny enough, were always based on the traction that I had gotten, never on the, I'm Uh, going to scrap this and build something new. That sounds very risky. Why would you, (laughs) right? It's all based on what, what the market, yeah, so ideas but plus market feedback, a market mm-hmm. opportunity. This isn't just you in a room guessing and getting some likes and some upvotes or whatever. You're, right. you're going to the market, you're experimenting, and you're getting feedback, and you're seeing opportunity to pursue. It's not Correct. guaranteed, but you're not just, you know, ears, ears covered, you know, making guesses. So that's yeah, every, very different. Every, every seed investor, and I would say we kind of tranched it or did it in phases, every one of them got some evidence from the market in terms of payment or revenue for sure to look at and go okay i believe in you but also this is real and there's something here and then i would obviously i would take then the luxury of that capital and go okay but now that i don't have to just go heads down and try to grow this thing into something bigger this is the time to push in the clutch and see if i can build something even more exciting and if it doesn't work out, I've got 18 months to, to revert back to the thing that I know works somewhat, you know? Yeah. This isn't a troll question. Um, why didn't you do crowdfunding from thousands of people? Why did you go the traditional route? It's not a troll question, I promise. Yeah. Um, I it is think, a troll question. Who am I kidding, actually? Yeah. No, I, I will actually say I, I 
thought about it, but I didn't have to. And that was nice. Um, yep. That was a luxury. I also learned, I did party rounds. I, before there was crowdfunding, there were party rounds where you would take money from 25 different investors, very small amounts. I did that with my first company and I, I realized how much I didn't like having lots of people on my cap table. Now, at the same time, you could say, oh, well, it's just rolled up and it's this proxy thing or whatever. It just didn't really ever sit with me. And I will say this, I have been very fortunate to work with folks like Rob Walling, Einer, Bryce Roberts, Bloomberg mm-hmm. Beta now, Roy Bahat and, and team are, were lead investors in the last round. These are phenomenally smart people who are also good people. Yeah. If you can have people like that on your team and have them heavily invested <laughs> in, in your success, I think that's better than a crowd of people you know, that, that believe now customers, I'm not talking about customers, but if, you know, I'd rather have one or two or five of those people say, I'm here for you anytime you want to get on the phone. And you're like, yeah, and you've seen some things. <laughs> then a thousand folks who like, they all love you and they mean well, and they all have experiences, but how do you like actually get any one of them to lead you or coach you when you need it? Right. And I, it's not two way, is it really? They're just paying into a pot, hoping to make some money. Yeah. The time. And I think it could be two-way, but like, I, I feel like it's more of a crapshoot of like, I can tell you this, the investors that I just rattled off, they're not throwing $1,000 into a crowdfunding thing. There's only one way to get money from them. And they're the best in the world at building you know, software companies, I believe. And the only way to get money from them is to go direct, right? So I think they're just of a caliber that if I can work with them directly, that's what I prefer. And I got to do that. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot of them. I think I said Rob Balling is the only person if I was starting a business, like, I'd talk to him. And I like mm-hmm. Rob a lot. We, we had Rob on the podcast and spoke to him off it. Like, I like Rob a lot. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're talking about crowdfunding. We talk, they do this, uh, it's not as, as safe as what they do in, in YC, um, where they, the value of the company is going to be, or the value of the, the cost of the shares when they do a raise, whatever. Is, that, is, mm. is it a safe? No, it's not a safe. A safe is YC. YC is a, YC is a safe. And then They're, the crowdfund is different, right? Yeah, they use a, well, and I, I learned Gumroad in particular uses this thing called like a, a, crowd, a CF shadow safe. It's right. their own flavor of a safe. And it's substantially different. <laughs> yeah. It's not as favorable for investors. I mean, I read it. I know, I know it's not just Gumroad. I know it's, I think it's the platform. Yeah, Republic just, as well. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and actually, I didn't mean to say Gumroad. Actually, um, I'll clarify. Gumroad use that as do many. I mean, everybody that's rated off off of Republic has used the same terms, and I had no idea that they were the way they are. Uh, I know I've thought about participating in in some crowdfunding of cool things that I that I liked, but now that I know the terms, I don't think I ever will. It. I. I don't want to. I guess it does feel akin to kind of gambling in a way. I know there's always risk in startups, but You've obviously had funding rounds. You know the due, the due diligence you go through, right? When you yeah. when you get that money, I know you're a yes. trustworthy guy, but you still have that process. Um, it feels like it isn't there as much. You know, I can go and invest, say in Gumroad. I'm not having a go at Gumroad, but I can go and invest in Gumroad. I've not really done anything besides looking at maybe Sir Hill's tweets and seen a bit of hype. I haven't done anything, but I can still invest. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the due diligence process? What do they what do they look? They look at financials. What do they do? Outside of crowdfunds, I'm talking. I'm talking general VC. Yeah, um, I will say that it is. <clears throat> it has been able to be shockingly slim in terms of the amount of diligence that's done at the early stage. Okay. 
you have certain things that have obviously happened and caught national news or global news and attention that have drawn attention to the fact that, wow, you really need to do more because terrible things can happen, especially at a billion dollar scale when you don't. Mm. Um, we all know who those companies are. But oh, yeah. the, the, the trust network that exists in places like Silicon Valley and the startup ecosystem in general has been up until now, I would say, very, very effective at weeding out bad actors and helping uh, the best investors find the best founders in most cases, or at least trustworthy founders, and trustworthy founders to find trustworthy investors. It, it actually kind of worked pretty well so far since the 70s or 80s or how far it would go back. There's a disconnect when you move things, like I said, from a, what I just say, if I can get on the phone with Rob or Roy or Bryce and we can do this, this is a high fidelity trust conveyance <laughs> type of medium, right? That is really necessary. The one thing you will find in all of those is they will do this and they will prefer to actually meet you in person. They'll prefer to have known you for a while. They will prefer to have talked to your friends or have a warm recommendation from another founder that they trust. It is trust through and through. And trust is a fantastic shortcut in all of life when you say, I don't know if I should record with you today, but why did I do it? Because I trust that, you know, based on what I know, you know, and who you know and everything else that you're, you're good people, right? That can actually work. That works in so much of the economy. Where I'm going with this is when you're in a crowdfund situation, the opportunity for exploitation and disadvantage right? That asymmetry, that arbitrage becomes so much easier because why? You have an information asymmetry where the investors actually know less than the person raising the money. That is the first Mm -hmm. time that dynamic comes into play. I know less than Roy, Bryce, and Rob when it comes to many, many things, including the terms of this agreement. That is flipped on its head in a crowdfunding scenario. Now suddenly the investors know less and are less sophisticated than the person raising the money. And that sets the stage for everything else. That's a very good point. I had not looked at it like that. That's, uh, yeah, crowdfunds are giving me a weird feeling in my gut for a while and speaking with you and even the point you just made is very valid. <laughs> so I think people that are listening just take from that you know, what you want, but don't necessarily rush into crowdfunds. If you do, put $10 in. You know, don't go into <laughs> substantial money. Oh, man. Be willing to lose it. And, yeah, and I, sure. And I think the gambling analogy that you used earlier, I understand why you used it. But keep in mind, when you go to Vegas or wherever you go, the odds are known. The odds Good are point. not known in startup land. They are not known. It's worse than gambling. <laughs> well, it no, is, it's not worse, but you know what I'm saying. It's gambling without a commission overseeing the casinos. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's gambling where the cards can be rigged, the table can be weighted, the dice can be weighted. Like it's it's that kind of gambling, and Not for sure. that's your information asymmetry at work. It's I didn't realize that mattered. Yeah, I didn't realize that they need to cut the deck. I didn't realize that they needed to you know open a new pack of cards. I didn't realize the weight of the marble mat. Yeah, it all matters, and you shouldn't have to know that. But when the commission works for the casino <laughs> when Ooh. when the crowdfunding platform is incentivized to get as much funding through the door as possible and they are also the overseers 
of the rules of the game. This is not a good setup. They this is called a conflict of interest, right? They choose it's, their contract they have. We sure. make money on transactional volume. That's like, yeah, again, this is the, this is the gambling commission of Nevada owning the, 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 the Mirage <laughs> and saying, come on in, it's safe. That, that would never, that, that's not how it's supposed to work, right? So we have the SEC, but that's not heavily involved in private markets. And to the extent sure. it is, it's mostly there just to get the investors to sign a piece of paper or to say, I'm accredited. Why? That protects the fundraiser, not the investor. The rules that are even, even the rules that are in place are actually mostly there just helping the fundraiser cover themselves, not to help the person investing not make a bad decision, right? Or understand the odds or understand how the information is stacked against them. There's no regulation at that level at the moment. Yeah, you got my brain pinging in a few ways. Um, No, that's interesting, Matt. Thank you for that. Um, all right, cool. I, I'm before, before I let my brain wander, which I know I'm gonna, it's gonna like pursue these things you've said. I'm now like thinking about it in the background. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about enterprise sales. And now we've had uh, Ben Orenstein from Tuple come on before and talk about um, enterprise sales. And, and uh, they they experimented and they, they've done really good with enterprise sales. And even as a percentage of their business, I always assumed that enterprise sales dominated their business and it was all their revenue. It's actually they're actually quite diversified and it's really cool. Mm-hmm. You are now. You're doing direct sales. You basically do the opposite of what we do. And I guess it's, uh, um, I guess you talked about the stress of, uh, you talked about a bunch of things. I want to understand, um, I, th- I think I partly do. I understand because there's, there's a higher amount of money to be made, but then that's enterprise sales. My brain's going in a bunch of different directions now, but I want to understand why do you do direct sales rather than do the self-serve option? You've been talking about this lots. So I'm curious to know more. Yeah. Uh- I started with self. I started with direct at the very, very beginning. I would say the first handful of people that signed up for the product. I would have Zoom calls and then still charge forty nine dollars. So it, it was it was entirely customer development. This is not about the unit economics of the sale. Moving past that, I did self serve for two years of seed stage. Occasionally, I would lock it up and say it's early access, request access, so that I could have more conversation. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people across the market to learn what I've learned. So um, customer development is different. And I want to be clear that that, is, that high touch effort should always precede self-serve because otherwise you're scaling that which you do not understand <laughs> and you'll you're fail. Guessing. You're guessing at what they need. So more luck you're doing that handholding early to learn, oh, they need that documentation. Oh yeah, that we need to automate that tool tip or you know, you're going to automate it through self-serve. That's great. But scale, even there, self-serve is a scaling function of what you've established works through direct interactions. Never just, let's just add a checkout because of course that's what everyone needs. Well, yeah, you need that. <laughs> they might need a lot more than that because they don't know how to, they gave you their credit card information and now what? And now you have churn and everything else, right? So Okay, pause on that. Like, that's fascinating the way you look at that and I love it. Um, where does that change though? So you're doing direct sales to get these ideas to then scale yes. to self-serve and everything. Yes. There are things that can change that. I think of Paul, for example, with a huge audience where he can get validation instantly, the distribution there. That's yep. one thing that can kind of help a little bit. Um, you, you don't have a huge audience that you can validate this with. So you went in direct sales. But even if you did, like, this is fascinating to me. Like, I, I've never thought like that. 
Yeah. <laughs> you you speak to people before you try to then scale it through. I don't know. I mean, we just didn't do that. Paul, you, Paul validated it. You, Paul, you validated it through like a landing page and emails and you had the well, audience. a tweet first. It's, well, a tweet, but you got the feedback and you had the idea. I mean, we did support, we did customer support for ah, yeah, okay. two and a half years, right? So we were directly in it. And that's why I wanted to do it that way. So we want, I wanted to directly interact with our audience to, to learn the things that Matt's saying. Okay, boom. So Matt, what you're talking about, you, you jump on calls with people to learn. We learn through support. Like the way we shaped our product is through overwhelming ideas coming through support. You could argue that it's more efficient jumping on a call, right? We've never done calls because uh, you made the joke about 84 email on Twitter, you 84 emails versus <laughs> jumping on a call. Like you might be right. Me and Paul would just not jump on a call people. You are. So you started, yeah. you jumped on the call. Sorry to go off on that. I just think what you said That's was good. fascinating and I had to. Um, yeah. And, and I, th- so let me add this because this is something I've learned recently. We went back to talk to sales because, okay, I was actually encouraged to do direct sales early on. We had an investor, an angel investor, and I'll never yeah. forget. We were struggling. I was trying to get traction. It wasn't quite working. And he was like, just do enterprise sales. You know, you know how to do it. You're, you're pretty good at it. Just do it. It, it'll, it can grow. You can add all this revenue. <clears throat> but I didn't want to do it because I didn't. The thing we were selling and to whom we were selling to, I was worried I was going to end up being a consultant. And I didn't right. want to end up being a consultant. Sure, I do enterprise sales, but I'm selling you a project. Yeah. And then I have to work 80 hours a week to serve you. That's not, <laughs> that's not the business I want, right? I want a life outside of outside of this so when i do sales i wanted to do sales eventually but i wanted to know that there was a moment at which i could hand them the keys to the product to the platform and walk away and at that point the margin kicks in and the value for them kicks in and we're all happy right so the talk to sales now i think two two things one is if it's an existing product category much less needed because they understand what they're buying, how to install it, how to adopt it, what success looks like, what they should expect to get immediately. Oh, I've got the blinking blue dot that says I have a visitor. It's working. It's <laughs> working. Yeah, yeah I, I get it, right? I know where to put the script tag. Like you guys have a lot of well-worn paths in your product category in people's brains that are already well-established. And they're just going to try to do what they've done with many other products in your category. And if it doesn't work, then you have a support issue. With us... Uh, it's a novel product in a category where people are not familiar with this capability. Yeah, we have to help, we have to show them what's possible before we can, and then we have to learn how to show them what's possible so that we can eventually put that on our website. We want to scale this to self serve eventually, but when it's a novel product and it's an invention, no one has those cow paths in their brain where they're like, "Oh, this is a this is an analytics." Traffic analytics product. I, I get it. I should find a script tag. So, oh, there it is. And I should go looking for that. They have none of that. Those pathways haven't been built. So we have to build those for them. And once the market starts to go, oh, do you have a summit-like tool? This is, this is the <laughs> summit one. Sure. Then we can step back and go, you know what you're doing. You're going to follow this recipe. And we can even self-serve you that. But those paths don't exist yet. We have to literally forge those paths the first time learn yeah. how to make those efficient and then we can scale those that's that's one aspect of the reason we do talk to sales no I, I just all i'm thinking to myself is there are some fucking idiots on twitter who talk about a bunch of stuff they just don't understand and then and they get huge distribution because they just they know how to be polarizing i think yeah. i just laugh because people like you and ruben who are just 
know so much but it's like those are the hidden gems and you talk about investors too they know so much the people the things people see on twitter they need to be aware that a lot of people haven't got a clue what they're talking about the way you your philosophy around approaching product market fit around like scale like thing like knowing the things that are missing or things that aren't working and then thinking about what to explore this is such a good approach to running a, a business and i'm excited for our listeners to actually hear this because a lot of the shit you see on Twitter, like, it's bullshit. This is actually it's, it's real well. value. This is this is real. So, so, so wanna, yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I thank you for having me. I, I, as you can tell, this is this energizes me. I'll crash after this, but this is great. The <laughs> other the other thing I wanted to mention is, and, and again, I don't think if you if you haven't done enterprise sales, you can't appreciate this. But the guy who says, "Give me the thing. It's transactional. Just give me the price." He doesn't have the problem that our customers have. My prospect is a vice president of marketing at an organization of, say, 40 to 100 people who has a certain priority set for the year that's already set. And he has a team of, you know, six to 12 people that work for him who have all gotten excited about and agreed on these priorities. This new tool shows up that nobody's ever thought existed and don't really understand the value of it. And he wants or she wants to spend thousands of dollars on it. Do you really think that he can just or she can come to the website and fill out a form and say, I signed up for one and then turn to the team and, and like success? That's a great point. What does he need? She yeah. needs me to have a call to do what? Yep. To align their team around the reasons to do this, to transform their thinking, to lead a project, yeah. to help people that work for them understand the value and benefits. Why? Because that's called leadership. So enterprise sales at its best is you're actually providing a leadership service to executives at a company who aren't just going to sign up for your thing in an afternoon and flick a switch. If they do that, their team's going to hate them or no one's going to use it. (laughs) That is, that's not how things work, right? And by the way, oh, this is really important and valuable. Who are these people? What did you buy? Who'd you buy from? Do you know them? Are they, are they... Are they slime or are they trustworthy? I don't know. I've never talked to them. <laughs> really? You're betting our marketing funnel on a, on a company? You're spending a third of our budget on a thing? You, you don't even know if they're going to be here tomorrow or who they... Oh, fuck, man. This is so... Well, ha- I wanted... To, Does it work? What's the, <laughs> what's, so what's yeah. the one step back from that? Because it's, it's a new product, new product category. How yeah. do these people... How do you approach how these people... Because that would be the question, right? Like, if this is a new thing, how do people know what to look for to find the thing that is, that is your product? Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, we, we have to work our way up the ladder. So what I'm doing right now is I'm going through my network. I'm, I'm mostly using LinkedIn to generate inbound interest, Twitter to some extent. Um, but on LinkedIn, making my network aware that this exists, this is what it does, these are the benefits, this is where it fits into your stack, this is how easy it is to adopt. We have to somehow create solution awareness because they have these problems. The good news is we're solving problems they have. They don't know their audience. They wish they knew them better. They wish they could personalize their messaging better. We solve all these problems. They're problem aware, but you're right. They're not solution aware. They know there's tools in this space, but they don't know about us. And so we, part of the reason, you know, more venture funding, one of the, one of the uses of capital that we would have is, how do you solve that? Well, you meet them where they are conferences how the question really you need to answer is back to what i said how do people in those roles learn about new innovative things Mm. 
I hate to say it, but it's a lot of the things that that we cringe at. Conferences? Yeah. Uh, who sponsored this thing? Uh, a PR placement in a magazine in the back of an airline <laughs> thing that I read while I was on a whatever. God forbid, Gartner, right? Yeah. They, and, and what do those companies do? Those companies know how to take your tool and bundle it up into language that, that they speak. So I'll give you an example. A banking CFO. I talked to the CFO, of a, uh, not CFO, uh, CTO of a regional bank recently. When I talked to him, he used words like, we have moved to cloud. I'm like, you moved to cloud? Who says that? Well, CTOs of regional banks say that. Yeah. Why would he say that? Because that word, if you unpack that word, it means 10,000 things. But what PR has done and what marketing has done is it's found the word that it can put into the zeitgeist that signals if you are running a billion dollar company's IT team and you have this problem, which is 100 things (laughs) wide, we can condense that into one word, which is cloud. <laughs> and if you don't have cloud, you need cloud. And we sit here as engineers and, and, and you know, VP level down, guys who write code, let's put it that way, gals who write code. And we think that's the dumbest cloud. What does that even mean? What we don't realize is that word is a spell. <laughs> it is a spell that has been created by marketing people to infect someone's mind and then share it with somebody else so they can go to their boss and say we you know what our biggest project is of the year we're going to move to the cloud right if if you can't give them that spell that three-word phrase or four-word phrase they're never going to bring in aws enterprise solutions architect team because if they went into a if they go into a meeting with their c-level executive uh colleagues and they have five minutes to present their goals for the year you have to somehow compact a 24-month project that's going to cost $3 million into three words. And you tell me how you're going to do that without using a silly phrase like move to cloud. It's not possible. It, it, it aligns with humans needing stories too. Like yes. Marketing's so involved. In of this. course. And they need stories not for bad reasons. I think that's the thing. You can take a very cynical view that we need stories because you know, we're, we're simple-minded or whatever. No. They need stories because stories move people in an organization to behave differently and to act and to adopt your thing right so i don't you know if yours is like privacy first analytics that's not as silly as move to cloud but it definitely simplifies a lot of what you offer but it gives somebody a phrase to share at their team and that's a story that we're moving to caring about being more ethical caring about privacy we all do it i just think that enterprise sales gets a bad rap for being the vanguard of the story where the storytellers in the field (laughs) telling our stories and people are like that's just a bunch of fluff it's like i don't know how to move a thousand people uh, or align a thousand people at a company the size of whole foods you know you need to get a you need to align a thousand people at whole foods to adopt a new solution it better be a story you know it's not going to be a signing up for something this afternoon (laughs) Your, your Twitter bio needs to be the enterprise sales guy. You need to be a guy. The, the enterprise. <laughs> I joke, right? But like, I talked to Ruben Gomez about enterprise sales because like, I'm, I'm like loosely interested in it, right? And Ruben always says, oh, you should talk to Matt Wensing. He knows. Like, clearly you do. This is, this is such a good conversation. Do you think all businesses eventually have to go enterprise if they want to continue growing 
uh, significantly or like like why couldn't you just stay like why couldn't you go self-serve and never touch enterprise like you talked about the stress but you invented this this special like the language you invented that produced python why couldn't you pivot into something self-serve and never touch enterprise like why are you touching enterprise is it because it's like the big growth thing like what is it Mm. uh i had this conversation about two months ago as we were making this choice internally uh ryan is the name of um a person on the team is talking to us ryan and i are talking this very question should we turn off self-serve and i said listen oh what i think i'm seeing is the level of effort required to get successful adoption is almost the same whether they're paying us two digits of dollars per month <laughs> or four yeah. digits of dollars per month yeah all the only choice we have isn't the amount of education i do and the number of calls i'm on it's how much value that creates for them and how much they're willing to pay for us because of that. So we, when you're in that situation, when you go, wow, there's no self-serve add the script tagged to your site option that's just well-worn and understood, it means I have to go share my story regardless in either case. So there isn't the path of like, don't tell the story and collect a small amount of money at large times 1 million or tell the story and make a lot of money. That I could see like, okay, I mean, Maybe that one million adds up to this one. But if you're telling me that in either case, you have to do that meh call you described, now you choose. Like, which, and oh, now it's like- easy for you, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. In either case, I have to do that. <laughs> I might as well go after the one that's willing to pay me enough to justify the effort, right? <laughs> no, that makes complete sense. Yes. If you, if you run Fathom, so if I, I'm just I'm so curious to pick your brain. Like, you run Fathom, right? Fathom, yeah. like, worldly successful, growing, great growth. Um, so awesome. on self-serve, right? And as you, for various reasons you say, and like marketing, whatever else it may be. Mm-hmm. Would you explore enterprise if you were in our shoes? I, I would. If I were you in your shoes, I'd be me and I would. If I were you, I think the thing you have to, look, it will add revenues. It will add substantial revenue. I think maybe we could agree on sort of the, the, the that's the assumption. It will also add cost. <laughs> yeah. You could model that out and decide if it's worth it. It will also add stress of, wow, we have to build a sales organization. And a yeah. bad sales organization is worse than none at all. Yeah. So, but an excellent sales organization could be transformative because maybe I mean, you're talking about maybe adding, maybe you could 5X your revenue, right? <laughs> It's possible. I mean, Slack, for example, is a great example of complete bottoms up adoption, totally possible. And then I think Stuart Butterfield let slip one time or he just shared on stage like, yeah, by the way, like the top 20% of our customers is 80% of our revenue. Wow. Okay. So if you do the math, that's leaving 80% of your revenue on the table because you don't want to do that. Right. Now, maybe that doesn't matter to you because you're completely happy and well adjusted. I have ambition as a disease, so I would probably look at that 80% and go, gosh, why not try it, right? And by the way, we can afford to hire really stellar salespeople. We don't have to muck around because you're in that privileged position. You don't even have to hire, skip the junior people, the people who don't know what they're doing, skip the person who actually did enterprise sales for like a billion dollar company. You could find the unicorn that's like, yeah, I've done the first enterprise sales for startups at your stage before. That's interesting. Frankly, like if I could clone myself, I would love to come in and do something like that, right? Find a me that can do that. And then you're like, I mean, if it doesn't work, 
it doesn't work, but you only need one of me to test that theory, right? And you could do it on a contract basis. And like, I should be able to sell a six figure or seven figure contract for your software given enough time, right? Okay, so uh, I think I want to talk about our reservations because you say, you, you know, you're introverted, um, but you're, you're jumping on calls. Your business is enterprise first, sales calls, these sorts of things. At what point does this, this under, so, you know, talk about lifestyle business. Lifestyle business is no longer a negative thing. People are doing, you know, seven, eight figure lifestyle businesses. Yeah, at yeah, what, that's great. At what point, do, do, at what point does enterprise sales undermine your lifestyle, your, your sense of karma? All businesses, they're not just calm all the time. You have bursts, but <laughs> I, I mean, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but we do have this sense of enterprise sales is opening up this big can of worms, which adds such a burden, which adds su- such a stress to a business that's otherwise doing ridiculously good. We know what we need to do, though, and it's all development. Like, if we caught up on the development needs that we had, I would be more willing to explore enterprise, right? But because we know exactly what we need to do at the moment, because thousands of our customers have told us, I don't see that. Like, I I agree with what Matt's saying about enterprise. It's not going to be you and me doing it. But I I don't think we're at the place where it makes sense yet because Mm -hmm. we know what our growth can be because we literally are told it all day. Like our support person is told it all day, every day for what we need. (laughs) And it's and it's features. It's not anything else at the moment. That's the biggest opportunity for growth right now. Enterprise might come later and it wouldn't be. And that's a good point. But but no, Matt, does does enterprise sales for you um, undermine your lifestyle in any way? Or have you just got it in a way where it's not cushy, but it's good? It, it has in the past. I mean, I, I, so for my last company, I was doing those enterprise sales I mentioned. I, I mean, I would, um, there were weeks where I would say, okay, I'm, I'm flying to Seattle on Sunday night. I'm going to be there for two days. Then I'm going to fly to Denver on Wednesday. And then Wednesday night, I'm going to take a red eye to Boston. And that was my week. And, you know, brushing my teeth in a Target restroom in Maine to do a, <laughs> to do a pitch to a company that, you know, I don't know why billion dollar grocery store settled in Maine, but that's where they are. So you, you got to go where they are. That's, that was awful. It was necessary because I was so vested in my equity stake in that company and I needed it to succeed that once you're all in, you're all in and you, you don't really have much of a choice. I think the risk that I'm going to avoid this time is, um, right. So for that business, I never figured out how to enable anybody else in the world to do what I did as well as I did, or even good enough. Mm-hmm. And that's the danger. And I think you can become very married to your product where you are the salesperson extraordinaire because you're the founder. This time around, <laughs> it's I'm building a repeatable playbook, sales deck, process, nice. script from day zero. And I'm loving that because I'm using it and reusing it. And I will absolutely get to the point where I say, if we want to grow this business, we need to hire somebody else to do this role. And I'll be able to hire them to do exactly what I did and follow the steps and coach them. And I'll, I'll, I'll manage them, but I'm not going to be on the call with, uh, with you know, some startup in you know, um, some remote part of the world at one in the morning, which is something I did in my last company. So... <laughs> You have to, you know, being able to delegate is really the lost, um, it's the lost art or it's the thing that you, if you mess up and you don't do that at the right stage, like product, here, here's what happens. Product becomes magical. It becomes super powerful 
but you two are the only people who really fully understand all of that. And now there's a learning curve that is almost insurmountable for somebody to come in and really understand and absorb all of that and become as fluent as you are in it, right? And enterprise sales requires a level of product fluency mm-hmm. that is, you just have to, be, you have to be pretty smart and pretty good at it. So I would say, what you won't do is you won't do what I did, which is you'll go sell the first five yourselves or try to. And then it's like, oh my gosh, we have a 100% close rate, you know, when Paul does it. Why would we ever hire anyone else? And oh, by the way, Paul's not getting <laughs> commission either. So we can have commission-free 100% close rate. The company no longer has an incentive to, 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 to hire anybody else, right? So don't do that, <laughs> right? right? Look at the cogs that you would have. Make sure people become fluent. Get them in early enough to become fluent. Don't throw them in and expect them to be able to understand your product on day zero, right? Do some founder-led sales with them there or however you want to do it. But don't do what I did. And I, I basically became the lead salesperson and it was horrible from a lifestyle perspective. I won't do that again, right? And I learned the hard way. Um, yeah. Another question has come into my head that I have to ask you. So one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast is me moving from, oh, hey, I just build everything and I haven't got any other responsibilities. I just have to code and maybe <laughs> it's a bit of scaling stuff. We obviously have another developer. We have another part-time developer and I'm sort of, involved in management stuff and one of the things that i've had trouble with is delegating and i think you're in a very similar position in that you built the core of the product you know your style you know how you want it you know things like you're thinking about the security things and um mm-hmm. adam Martin said something to me which is like the lines of you know you want to hire someone who's better at security than you so you're not worried about security issues in the code but for you how do you step away and enable people to ship code so for example if i stepped away I'm like not com- I'm not confident to have someone um, do the data. We have to say there's like billions of rows, right? That need migrating to a new database, which is one of the things I've got to do. A new bottomless cluster, whatever it is. Mm. I I know what needs to be done, and the idea of trying to delegate that to someone else feels more stressful than just doing it. But by mm-hmm. doing it, I'm then losing that delegation where I could be doing other things. How do you deal with that? Because you've got a way more complex po- um, project than us. Like your, your stuff's nuts. How do you delegate and how do you think about it? And also, how do you think about what I just said to you about me struggling to delegate stuff like huge database migration tasks? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I won't pull any punches here. I will just say, I think Adam's right, 100%, that you just haven't found anyone that you're able to trust yet. With that and high that, risk, yeah, migration stuff. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying, by the way, that that would necessarily be, even be like a good, but I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is I've worked with DevOps people on, on a contract basis, even with Summit, where I'm like, this guy runs circles around me. Yeah. Why would I, if I touch this, it's actually more risk than if he touches it. If I spend two <laughs> hours explaining to him how, what I need done, he will literally come in with better tools more craftsmanship, higher attention to detail, and more safety measures than if I do it myself. Why? Because he's just better. <laughs> he's just truly better. And you might be in a situation where you're, you're, you are superlative at it, and so therefore it's hard to find. But as I learned in college, I thought I was smart until I went to college and I met people who were so smart I couldn't even really comprehend how smart they were. When you meet people like that in an interview, it completely flips your trust equation to, I don't trust myself to do this compared to how much I trust them. 
I think it's just that hard to find people that are that good. And I think it's such a rare encounter that we think it's a delegation problem when in reality it's a recruiting problem and a talent acquisition problem. And maybe, maybe that's, I don't know what the root causes are of that, but the, you know, Peter Bolka is our lead developer right now. I ship no code other than if I need to fix something on the Python side, backend maybe. He's completely led our front-end products since January of last year. He shipped on his first day, and it blew my mind how quick he was. Giles uh, was our lead developer before that who built the entire Canvas product from scratch. I delighted in hiring these people and going, show me what you've got. And they just blew my mind. And the people who can do that are dying for a leader or a manager who gives them that much autonomy and trust because then they, they're like cheetahs on an open field. They're like, I've been waiting my entire life for somebody to trust me this much so that I can delight them. Because if you only ever tell people what to do, they can never exceed your expectations. This is, I think you're bang on. So I, we, we hired mid-level um, a developer. We have a, our part-time developer, he's part-time, but he's like, he's better than me. <laughs> like a bunch of things, but he's part-time. Yeah. Um, I think that's it. I think I need someone senior with more experience than me who's way better. I think that's where we're going at end of this year, early next year. But I think that's bang on, actually. Um, it's yeah, hard to I find, like though. That. That's, that's, like that's that. the thing. Um, and uh, by the way, I'll, I'll mention it. Mikey Trafton, T-R-A-F-T-O-N has done some amazing talks at Business of Software on talent, hiring, and recruiting, and, and experience getting, to, getting teams like this around him. And his gift in life is literally assembling teams. He is the Nick Fury to the Avengers, if you will. He, he, he assembles the teams that are just amazing, and he, he's so good at interviewing for it. And, everything. and he, he was an inspiration to me in sort of coming to, coming to that you know, for myself. And I'm very fortunate. I have, a, I have an ops person in Ryan who is better than me at everything aside from product. I have a product person who's better at all things coding than me. The only thing I'm better at at this point than Ryan or, or Peter is really, I would say, sales mm-hmm. and market discovery, right? Like understanding what the market needs and should be because I'm on the front lines. But yeah, I'm, I, and yet I've, I've been a Python developer since 04 professionally. And, you know, I, it's not that I can't. <laughs> it's just that now I know people who are better than me and it's when they work for you. You know, they're the kind of folks where you wake up in the morning and they show you things that they've done that you did not think were possible to do on those timelines. And you're like, okay, I'm glad I'm not telling you what to do because I would have, I, I had a plan, a flat story I have to share. When Peter joined, I had a one week, three week, sort of one month um, kind of goals in mind for him. Okay, by this time you'll do this, by this time... He did the one-week stuff in the first two days. He did the three-week stuff in the first week, and he did the one-month stuff, I think, in two weeks. We were a month ahead on our roadmap within two weeks of him joining the company. And that was with me setting goals that I thought were aggressive, right? I'm like, okay, <laughs> now we know what's possible. I just, then you're just like, hey, take all the, take all the rope you want, man. I mean, this is, this is your world now. You're, you, this is your world. I'm just living in it. And, you know, those people are, are out there. That's, it's a hard be transition because Paul's been yeah. saying about hiring for ages, but it's more me, like, not I want clinging onto it in a sense. Like, it's hard to step back. Like, I know mm-hmm. I can scale to the ridiculous levels. Like, finding someone who can do that. I mean, I like Carl Savert is the only guy 
I know currently yeah. who could handle our data. And he's like a database engine. He builds database <laughs> engines. Hiring him would be, you know, you're going to like $500,000. Like you're going to spend stupid money because he's, he's actually beyond what we need. And it's like finding mm. that ground of what, what you actually need, the independence, the, the senior level of development, but also not someone who builds database <laughs> engines because like, yeah. they're... Yeah. It's hard, man. I, it is super so hard, hard, but but as I told, uh, I was talking to Daniel Zarek of Arrows uh, recently, and he's at the stage where the company is now your product. Build the company. Mm. Stop building your product. Because your team will build a lot more product than you can. They will exceed you. Right. So then this was later this year, I think, yeah, we're gunning at a more senior engineer, and these are the things to look for. Someone who yeah. can do stuff without any involvement from me, which is a weird thought. I can't even imagine that. I I'm have so a tweet where to- I list out the levels of autonomy for an engineer as like a sort of a watermark. Yeah. And somewhere on there is if you find an engineer who says, I understand how this fits the product vision and why I did it and everything below that, then you just, you just, you just check in, right? And they run, right? In the right direction. <laughs> and and now you're like, well, f- of course, three of these is better than one of me. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> I was I was the bottleneck, right? Yeah, I, and it's funny. I think I'm the unnecessary bottleneck. By the way, like our engineer can ship stuff. Like he he's ridiculous. He's way faster than me, which doesn't make like, he's less experienced than me, but he's faster than me because he's just focused on code. Mm-hmm. I'm now just looking at myself. Like, am I the unnecessary bottleneck? Do I just yeah. need to write like a checklist? And I'm just step out of the way and stop being so controlling because it almost feels like controlling behavior. The way you're talking about how you are with Peter, you're like hands off. Like, yeah, Peter. Yeah, this is our plan. Like, go off and do your thing. I'm gonna trust you to do that. Yeah. It's just making me feel like I'm being too controlling. This is what we're know. trying to build. These are the customers we're trying to delight. This is what they're struggling with. You're yeah. a product person. You're not just an engineer. A product person ought to be able to listen to calls. And then take away, oh, I heard that person imply that if we added a button over here that lets them see a list of X, it would like be worth gold to them. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm so glad your brain works here. Go build it. Don't, you know, just show me the prototype, right? You're, obviously, you can't be that, right? And, then, and now you're, you're being unfair to yourself to try to be that when you you can't be you know there are people and you know like i said maybe it's not the heart transplant surgery or the three billion rows right away but there are parts of it and then i'm just their wingman i basically ask peter every week how can i take things off your plate so you can focus on your magic you know and show me the trash to take out tell me the roadblock tell me the customer i need to, to ask you know, or to, to adjust expectations, like whatever that is, I'm your wingman, you know, now I'm just flying around paving the way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a happy place to be. But I mean, I, I don't, I don't blame you for that. But I've, I feel like in the indie world, people hire down by default. Mm. And I think there's a genuine lack of experience in working with world-class people that makes them blind to what it could be like I don't think that they want to hire. It's not. I think that's sort of giving people a bad name or bad credit. It's like you don't want to hire worse people. You don't. But I think if you haven't worked on a team like that, or you don't think it's possible, or you haven't met them, then yeah, you're not gonna. You know, you're not gonna aspire to that. So um, I'm very, very fortunate to work with incredible people. And then you know, it's funny. The more autonomy you give them, the more harder they want to work. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah. They, they never want to leave. Yeah. <laughs> Making me think about a bunch of things. No, that makes sense. Would it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thanks so much. And thanks for being sure, yeah. a psychologist for the last 10 minutes. Just there. Sorry. I, I love it, man. And you're doing great. So yeah, anytime. <laughs> um, so how can people, how can people find you? Like, so you summit.com. You're on, I hear you're on Twitter. Well, you worked for Twitter for a period of time and uh, you yeah, recently made redundant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I drank a lot of Red Bull. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Matt Wensing uh, on Twitter or use summit and then use summit.com is the website. And uh, I'm available, you know, pretty much constantly. Uh, it's, it's my favorite thing to do. As I said, though, I'm an introvert, so I'll disappear from time to time and just go into a shell. But uh, this was fun, guys. I appreciate you having me. Hey, thanks for everything, man. Mm-hmm.